the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, I'm Chuck Olmstead, and with me is Lori Cameron, and uh, we're doing this interview for the Widows Project. And uh, Lori, I'd like to welcome you today. Thank you, Chuck. So, uh, well, tell me about meeting your husband. Well, uh, we were a blind date. Um, the people that set us up, uh, I remember my friend, we were going skiing and she said I know who I need to set you up with and I'm like who and she said well so and so and it's like well why you know he's from Texas so (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then he said he's kind of churchy and I'm like oh he's a Christian yeah yeah that's the word he uses so um, so we got were um, introduced you know, and he called me and we talked on the phone for probably three or four weeks before we actually met. And that the rest was history. Yeah. So. And his name? Mike Cameron. Mike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you started the, when you connected? 28. 28. So what happened? How, when did you, uh, when did you get married? Um, well, we got married in 1992. So mm-hmm. we were married for, um, actually, we were we celebrated our twenty fourth wedding anniversary when he was in the hospital. Kids? Yeah, we have two children. Yeah. I'm very proud of them. My son uh, just graduated last May from Bethel University in mm-hmm. St. Paul, Minnesota, and he's working in Washington D.C. And my daughter uh, is a sophomore in college down at Western Oregon University. Oh, very good. Okay. We're fast-forwarding through a lot of the story. I'm sure you could tell. Talk to me about uh, what happened before uh, Mike passed away. Was it an illness, or what happened? He was diagnosed with cancer, uh, lymphoma, and it was pretty significant, uh, stage 4. And um, at the end of March and midway in April, they found pneumonia, and he was put in the hospital, and he didn't come out of the hospital. So he died two months, almost to the day. Prognosis, two months later, he's passed. Yes. That yeah. is very fast, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was on a ventilator probably the last 11 days. During that time, was there um, was there thoughts or any kind of processing that you were able to go through with him or was this it was such a rapid progression that you you really didn't get to talk about what the eventualities would be it happened so fast i don't think either one of us even had a chance to grasp going into the cancer diagnosis you know the doctors told me that it's real important for us to be positive and have hope and you know so all of their conversations with us I never had in my wildest ideas that it would end the way it did Mm -hmm. so yeah so that was one of my initial things and you still kind of go yeah it it's it's hard but then you think my children you know I was like why didn't I talk about it why didn't I talk to him about it and my son was like mom he couldn't have handled that to have seen me 
acknowledge to me his imminent death and to see the pain, I think that would have been too painful for him. Lots of uh, emotions, I know even, in just retelling that because um, those things are very real and very powerful. And so you're dealing with the the physical arrangements, obviously, but what was happening with, with your heart and with your mind during that time? I think that, you know, I read, you know, a lot of, I was a voracious reader, you know, and, and I was pretty obsessed with heaven, like the God of the universe. Is he okay? You know, I mean, he's with God, but what does that mean? And is he okay? Somehow, you just want to know, where are they? Are they good? Are they comfortable? And, you know, and you think about, like, I could do a better job than the God of the universe, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Grief Observed, probably helped me the most initially because in his book, it's it's his ramblings of his own grief, his own loss of his wife. And it it's not tied up in a bow. It's raw. It's real. And he talks about that when we get married, um, unless we're one of the small percentages that die together, one spouse is going to be left behind. And it's as part of the normal... Uh, part of a normal marriage is just like the honeymoon is. It's a normal phase. It's just the final phase of your marriage. And that really challenged me to walk the final phase of our marriage the way that we had walked our marriage together. And that gave me a lot of courage to walk with grace and hold my head high and not crumble because, you know, I had a uh, children at home still. My daughter was still in high school. My son was still in college. And, but that thought just really carried me through the first three or four months, you know, that I need to walk this, um, as a woman of faith, as a woman of integrity, you know, all the things that our marriage represented and who, who we were as a couple. How did you translate that to your children? Were you able to talk to them? Was it tough to have conversations about those kinds of things that you were feeling or that they were feeling? Well, my son, you know, of course, he his first thing is to step up and be the man of the house. And so, you know, I had the conversation with him. It's like, I don't need you to be your dad. I need you to be my son. And your sister needs you to be her big brother, not her dad. And, you know, I talked to him about that. You know, we worked too hard to transition, you know, from mom-son to adult friendship relationship. And I wasn't going to allow the death of his father to get our relationship enmeshed or upside down. And, um, And I understood that part of his, as a man, part of his grief process was making sure that I was okay and protecting me, but that... Um, that my job was to make, to protect my future daughter-in-law, you Mm. know, and that I couldn't, you know, when he gets married, you know, his responsibility is to her and to his kids. And I never want our relationship to get so upside down that he's burdened with, 
well, who do I care for? My mom or, or, you know, like he feels like he has to make a choice or have his wife resent me because, you know, I'm too needy or, you know, we just, he feels too burdened. Hmm. So that was real important to me to, to have those conversations. And we're still trying to work through. He calls me every day, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and I've said, you know, um, and I've promised him that when I need something, I will ask, I will mm-hmm. talk to him. And, and I did, I, you know, Sundays are really hard. Um, that was family day. You know, we were typical young family, you know, get up, go to church, Sunday school. And then, um, my husband and I were in charge of a drama ministry through the church. And so we'd go get lunch and then come back and rehearse, have play rehearsal and, music rehearsal from two to five thirty, and then we'd provide dinner for the kids and then youth group six to eight, you know, mm-hmm. and then get home homework, you know? And so Sundays were our day. And so I've asked my son, I'm like, I don't need you to call me every single day of the week. I need you to call me on Sundays. Hmm. You know, that's the hardest day for me. And you know, it's like, it's great talking to you every day. But just make be intentional about calling me on Sundays. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I know, uh, not to inject my story, but for my mom and dad, back in, they were back in Illinois. It was a Sunday call for me. Every Sunday, you know, and that was something that gave them an opportunity to look forward to. And, and yeah. now that they're both gone, I miss those Sunday calls, you know, because that was a, a point of connection, you know, for them. There's so many questions I could ask because things that I hadn't even thought about as far as the the family dynamics that take place after the death of a spouse. So young men try to step up to take the father's place and all of those kinds of things or step up to take those roles. And to be able to identify that, that's just that's just crucial, isn't it, that you're able to talk to them about that and recognize yeah. that, that some of those things take place. Well, and I think that, like, my daughter, um, she's very, art- both my children are articulate, um, but, you know, at some point I was grieving by myself, you know, like trying to hide some of my tears because you have this whole dynamic that, oh, I don't want to start them crying. I don't mm-hmm. want them to see me be upset. And I remember it was pro- it wasn't even a year, maybe six months she came and she cuddled up in my you know next to me and she said I don't ever see you cry anymore and um so it makes me feel like I can't cry and so it made me realize that I wasn't protecting her I was not being real and so I'm like you know I'm very sad and you know I am so then I tried to be learned that I need to be honest if I'm sad and that that's okay. I don't have to shield and cry alone that she needed to see me walk the grief as well because that gave her permission to be sad. So that was one life lesson on that. But then on the other hand, you're like, you know, we had another conversation where um, she was talking about her dad and... I was like, oh, yeah, me too, or, or not a me too, but, you know, I can relate. And 
it was kind of frustrating to her because then she, you know, it, and it finally dawned on me is that she was thinking that I was talking about my loss, but really what I was talking about, and I said to her, I'm like, my Me Too isn't, is an empathetic one. It's not about my loss of my husband. It's just like, I knew and I know better than anyone what father you had, what type of father, what, what your relationship was, how wonderful he was and how much, how close y'all were. And so I, more than anybody, know what you lost. And so my sadness isn't a sadness for me as a widow. My sadness is for you as a daughter who lost her dad. And I said, just like with me, it's like, you know the husband I had. You know the love we had and the relationship we had. So you, more than anybody else, understand what my loss was. And so it's an empathetic. We mm-hmm. can, sim- you know, we have that for each other. To be able to have those kinds of conversations, those deep conversations with a loved one, is so important, isn't it? And as we're talking about uh, the Widows Project and and, uh, what I wonder how many widows are able to have those kinds of conversations, they haven't been able to get to that point in their life yet, and how critical having um, a, a group of men and women who are able to help you navigate through that, how important that is. It's very important. I had... I, I don't know. I wanted to talk to anyone, whether I know them or not, if they were a widow or a widower, you know, like how, how did you get through this? How, what helped you? How, how do you do this? Or even to have someone say, I understand and you know, they understand. You don't have to, they can't, aren't saying, I can only imagine they're saying, I know. And for for you to know that they know. And your relationship's different. And the circumstances are different. But there are some universal comforts in being around someone who can just, doesn't have to say a word. They don't have to find words. They can just be sitting there maybe holding your hand. And it's very comforting. I've had conversations with men and women who are chaplains, who, you know, might be a police chaplain or a fire chaplain, and they articulate it this way. Oftentimes they really aren't allowed to say anything, but they're to be a presence in that situation. Their very presence is what brings a sense of stability at a time when things are so unstable. And sometimes as, as friends or colleagues, Maybe that's all we can be is a presence. And maybe that's all they need you to be. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes there aren't answers. Right. There really aren't. I mean, we try to figure out a some sort of a, a super articulate way to express something. And the reality is it's all gobbledygook to the listener. It, it They just need that comfort. Well, and I think a lot of people understand the initial loss. They understand, you know... Oh, I, you know, like the death of a spouse, but they don't understand all the collateral losses, you know, the small things, you know, like the, the moments in the day where you get the phone call from your spouse who says, Oh, it's just thinking of you. Um, or even 
you know, my husband, he was meticulous about the yard and we always had a beautiful yard. And, you know, I, the first time I tried to put the, um, fertilizer down, you know, more, I think more of it was more on me than in the ground Mm -hmm. and just sitting there crying because it's like, how inept am I at pushing a little thing and just, just the little losses every day that people don't think about and those go on and you're you're numb probably for the first I mean year or so and then slowly you the reality sinks in and the reality sinks in and even even the loss of realizing that at some point I didn't think of Mike first I thought about what I wanted to do and in a marriage, I always thought about what he wanted to do and what was best for us as a couple. And then realizing that I didn't think of him first. And when did that happen? You know, and just that grief. When did he become a second thought? Hmm. I don't know when I transitioned. I don't know when it happened. But somewhere along the way it did. And that realization is a loss. Was there guilt with that? Um, maybe a little, you know, um, but it's, it's a process. And I think that so many people know how to respond in the first month or two, but a lot of widows, I think there's no one around six months, a year, two years, three years, or people are like, you should be over that or, you know, and so then you try to hide it or they're like, oh, I don't want to talk about your... Like, I don't want to talk about Mike because that'll make you cry. Well, he was wonderful. I want you to talk about him. I want to be able to talk about him. I want people to tell me their stories because that makes me feel like I was a part of something great. I mean, at the funeral, I didn't cry at all because I was just so honored that I was the one he picked. I was the one that was married to him and of all of the stories that people had to share about how loving and giving and selfless he was. It's like, yeah, that's who I married. And I was so honored. And so it was just really amazing. And th- those are the kinds of things that bring comfort to the widower widower that they're not forgotten. You don't want them to be forgotten. And people are just so afraid to talk to you about Mm. their memories because they don't want you to cry. Well, I always thought Mike deserved every single one of my tears because I loved him and he was wonderful. And that was part of my healing is to just cleanse my soul. I just imagined that God had a bucket up in heaven holding all of my tears. And when that first bucket was filled, he would get out another bucket. If I could encourage anyone who is walking with a widow or a widower, tears are not the thing that to be avoided. Just it's part of the process. You know, they need to cry or they need to have you acknowledge that. Lori Cameron, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us. And we honor the memory of Mike. And thank you for sharing about him. I think I got a little insight into the kind of man that he is just by sharing your tears and hearing your story. I think you felt blessed 
to have him as your husband. I think he felt blessed to have you. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.